Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 15. And we're going to finish up Paul's postscript this morning. But I want to keep all of this in context. I want us to have our minds where they need to be as we're reading this postscript to this remarkable epistle that Paul has written, right? Think about what Paul has spent now, well, 14 chapters before we get to chapter, well, most of, part of chapter 15 too, but 15, 14 and a half chapters explaining. He's been talking about the greatest news that any sinner could ever hear, right? He's been describing to us the fullness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it sounds incredibly different from what we often hear, you know, in in these modern days. What Paul describes for us in these first 14 and a half chapters is not a pray this prayer after me, sign this card, come down front, raise your hand, oh, I see that hand kind of gospel, is it? Is it? It's not a modern gospel. This easy believism, this cheap grace that we see everywhere. It's not what it is. What Paul describes for us is a gospel that demands that our blinded eyes and our deafened ears be opened by the power of the Holy Spirit of God so that we might behold with our eyes the reality of the depth of our sin and our rebellion against Almighty God, right? So we might see that there is nothing good in us, that no one is good, no, not one, that no one in himself seeks after God. The entire seeker-sensitive movement, seeker-sensitive movement is built on a false presumption. God is the one who does the seeking. We need to have our deafened ears opened up so that rather than being led astray by the wisdom of this world, That basically tells you salvation comes through death. Justification by dying. As soon as somebody dies, they're in a better place. Doesn't matter how they lived. Doesn't matter what they believed. Doesn't matter what their relationship to God actually was. If they died, they're in a better place. And don't you dare say anything different because that's mean. Right? Right? Are you with me? No, it demands that we have our ears bored open so that we hear the gospel truth. So we hear that there is no hope for any of us, for redemption, for salvation. There is no hope for heaven for any of us. There is no hope of peace with God for any of us apart from what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in our place. Amen? If it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ, taking upon himself the sins of everyone who would ever believe and then going to the cross and pouring out his blood and suffering the wrath of God in our place, crying out, it is finished, it is paid in full, our sins would yet rest on every single one of us, wouldn't they? If it were not for Christ, in our place, in the place of believers, Living the life of perfect righteousness before Almighty God that none of us can live? If it were not for Him being obedient to the Spirit and the letter of the law from a heart of gladness and joy and love towards the Almighty Father in heaven? If it were not for His life of righteousness lived on our behalf, none of us, and imputed to us by faith, given to us, as our clothing by faith, none of us could stand before Almighty God, right? And it's a gospel that demands that 
we actually see our sin. And we see its cost. And we see what we deserve as a result. And so rather than just cavalierly praying and asking Jesus to come into our hearts, Romans tells us we must cry out in desperation. We must cry out from a position of desperation, of, 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 of such need that only Christ can fill it. And plead with the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior and our Lord. To believe in our hearts that He died the death that we deserved. And He rose from the dead. And He conquered hell and death for us. And plead with Him to be our Savior and Lord. And we are told that those who come to Christ in faith will not be put to shame. Amen. Right? It's not just an add-on to your life. The gospel. It's not just a, you know, my life's pretty good. I got things in order and it's, you know, I'm I'm doing all right. I just need a little Jesus to get me over the hump. That is a blasphemous concept of the Lord Jesus Christ. You hearing me? And so what I want to say to you from the very beginning, before you even read this text, is I want you to remember that the context for everything that Paul is saying to us in this postscript is the gospel, the true gospel, the one and only gospel, not the modified, brand new, nouveau American Christian gospel that is a non-gospel. Are you hearing me? So what he's got here in this postscript is not something written for everybody. You know? It's not like, oh, and just anybody can read this and go, oh, okay, this is for me. No, this is for Christians only. It's for only, it's only for Christians. Not for everybody, it's for Christians. Now, having said that, those of you who are not yet fully convinced, who have not been converted, who have not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that are in this room, whoever you may be, that is not an excuse for you to tune out of all this. Because what we're going to see in this postscript, specifically in the way that we're going to address it, is really the kind of life that every human soul should seek to live. It's impossible apart from faith in Christ. But it is attractive to those whose eyes have at least been enlightened some. So let's stand together and let's read the second half here of Paul's postscript. By my estimation, we have three sermons left in Romans. Three. And then we'll do Christmas. And then I'll surprise you. Look at it starting in verse 22. This is the word of God. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have been delivered to them, and I have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come, to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 
that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, except you come and instruct us, except you come and open our ears and open our eyes and inflame our hearts to hear and receive your word, Father, this time will be of no spiritual benefit to our souls. And so, Lord God, I am asking you, please, to come and manifest your presence with us. I'm asking you to come, please, Lord God, and make the hearts of everyone in this room, mine included, Lord God, to be to be fertile soil for your word. I pray, Father, that you would grant me the unction of the Spirit, that, Lord, I would think your thoughts after you, that my words would be governed by your will, that, Lord God, everything in me would be surrendered to you, that I might be a useful vessel for you and to you and for your people. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless this time and that you would make your word resonate in our hearts. And that, Father, you would, you would transform us by our understanding of your holy truth. What a God we have. How awesome, Lord, you are. And how grateful we are that you would speak to us. Bless this time, Lord, I pray in the name of our Lord and Savior and Redeemer, our elder brother, our gracious Lord Jesus. Amen. So here we are, beloved, in, in the second half now this morning of Paul's postscript in this letter to the Roman Christians. And when we read it, you know, it kind of takes on the tone, doesn't it? Even more of like a personal letter, you know? It, it sounds like a letter that you could get for from, you know, one of your friends. But I mean, think about what he says here. Paul explains, you know, why he, he's been slow to visit the brothers and sisters that are in Rome. And he describes his current and his future plans that he's got. And, and then he asks for prayer that all of his plans, you know, would come to fruition. And so in all honesty, this text is really a hard one to preach and apply. Here's why. It's not like, it's not like when Paul is teaching precept upon precept, right? Where you're like, okay, you read this text and you go, all right. Here's three or four points of doctrine. Here's some obvious application. That's not how this reads, is it? It's not how this reads. And so as, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about how to make best use of this text for our souls and for the sake of the kingdom. I was reminded, beloved, of what Paul said to the Corinthians, right? He says it in other places too, but he said to the Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Right? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, it's remarkable that Paul is willing to put himself forward in that way, right? This is a man that's confident in his faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's confident of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. But he says, look, man, you just look at me, follow me. King James Version says, follow me as I follow Christ. You just follow me. You do what I do. And it'll be all right. Follow how I, how I follow Christ. And so what I want us to do this morning is to try to get a sense of why it is that Paul writes what he does here, what his motivations are, right? And, and how we can imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Or again, as in the words of the King James Version, follow Paul as he follows Christ. So what are the ways? What are some ways 
that we should seek to imitate the Apostle Paul. Those were blood-bought believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Again, this is for Christians. I'm not talking about those who are not in Christ. But for those who are in Christ, right? If, if you know Christ as Savior and Lord in sincerity, in reality, right? You know you have been bought by the blood, the precious blood of the Lamb. How then, how then should we imitate the Apostle Paul? And I want to give you five ways this morning, okay? I know some of you are now freaking out. When my daughter saw this outline, she was like, man, five? This is going to be a long one, isn't it? I looked at her, I was like, are you serious right now? But I know some of y'all are probably thinking that. It's not going to be extra long, okay? It might be extra thick, but it's not extra long. It's, it's, there's a lot in this, okay? So one of the ways that we should seek to imitate Paul, the first one is this. We ought to seek to imitate Paul in his obedient devotion to God's revealed will. We ought to seek to obey Paul, or or to, to imitate Paul in his obedient devotion to God's will. I want you to look again with me what Paul says here in verses 22 through 24. Look what he says. He says, this is the reason. Well, I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, we know, right, we know from the very beginning of this letter that Paul had had this very strong desire to go and to visit the Roman Christians, right? It was something that was continually weighing upon his heart. Back in in Romans chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12, he says that he, he describes how, you know, that they were always in his prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So Paul had a real desire, a genuine desire, to go hang out with the Roman Christians and to actually do Christian things with them, right? But he was never able to get there. Why? Why was he never able to get to Rome? Here's why. Here's why. It goes back to what he said earlier. It's because of the responsibility that the Lord had laid upon him to preach the gospel throughout the regions from Jerusalem to Illyricum, right? He talked about that in the, in the first part of the postscript that we talked, that we read last week. Paul was committed to, to performing God's will and to fulfilling his calling. And so his personal desires to go to Rome and then to go to Spain, they had to be postponed for the sake of God's revealed calling and will for Paul's life. The reason he hadn't gone to Rome was because he was consumed with the calling that God had given to him. The reason that he didn't go to Rome was because he was consumed with the responsibility to preach the gospel where Christ had not been named and where the gospel had never been heard. He, he was so consumed with that calling that God had given to him that, that even his good desire, and let's just be honest about this, like it's not a bad thing for him to want to go be with the Romans, is it? But even that good desire... Even that good desire to, to go and see the Roman church and to share with them in the, in the grace of Christ and to teach them and to be mutually edified by their fellowship that had to be submitted to the greater calling to reach the unexplored, to, to, to reach the untouched regions of the earth carrying the name and the good news of the risen Christ because that was chiefly God's will for Paul. Right? You with me? Paul understood something, right? See, he got it. 
He really, he got it. And I think there's some professing Christians that just don't get it. But here's what he understood. He understood that he had been bought with a price. Paul got that. He understood that he had been redeemed. Think about this now. When he was a wretched sinner, when he was the most self-righteous man on the face of the planet, when he was an arrogant persecutor and murderer of Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ knocked him to his knees and saved his wretched soul. He'd been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so the focus of his life was to fulfill God's purpose in him. That's what had to come first before everything else. Obedience to the expressed will of God. Now here's the deal. That's a simple lesson, isn't it? Isn't it? We see it. Okay. If we're going to imitate, we need to imitate Paul in his obedient devotion to God's will. Every Christian should seek to be obediently devoted to God's revealed will. True or false? That's easy to say, right? We know that's, we know that's true. It doesn't, we don't require some geometric proof here. We know that's true. But what does that mean for us practically? I mean, what does it really mean? What does it mean to prioritize the Lord and His will above everything else? Well, I think it involves a lot of things, but I think where it starts is this. that It means that we seek to truly obey the greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord your God, what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. That's not an optional command. Right? You're with me on that, right? And the way that we reveal our love for the Lord God with our heart and soul and mind and strength, Jesus said, is by what? By what? Somebody's afraid to say it. By what? Starts with an O, ends with an E, has obedience in the middle. It's by obedience, right? To His Word. It means we strive to follow Christ and obey His commandments. And we fight the temptation to sin. Not just fight it for a little while until it gets too burdensome and then give in. It means that. We strive to keep our lives free from idolatry. It means that we consider Christ. And think about all that He endured on our behalf. And the, the gift of life and power and strength in the Spirit of God that He's given to us. So that, so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The writer of Hebrews says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It means that we, we do as Paul has already told us at the beginning of Romans 12, right? That we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable unto God, right? That Which is our spiritual worship. That we also, you know, are not conformed to this world, but that we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so that by testing, we discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect, and then we do it, right? So when you talk about Christianity in these ways, and the obligations of the Christian ethic in these ways, what it, what it reveals to you is this, is that it's the worldling, okay? It's the worldling. Or the false professor, or the hypocrite. That is ruled and driven by selfish human desires. Who lives their lives for their own pleasure and their own satisfaction. And who never considers God or His will or His commandments, right? But ultimately what it means for us to to imitate Paul's obedient devotion to God's will 
What it means for us to do that is really to focus our efforts on following in Christ's steps, right? Again, remember, right? We are to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, right? So there's a sense in which we can eliminate the middleman and follow Christ. Yes, Christ must first be Savior and Lord of our souls, but then he becomes our example to follow, doesn't he? And the life of our Lord, if it was characterized by anything, and it was characterized by much, but if the life of our Lord was characterized by anything, it was characterized by a full devotion to the will of the Father, was it not? Was it not? He glorified the Father in every single aspect of his life. Every single aspect of his life, he glorified the Father. And he accomplished all that the Father had committed to him to do. He he did not come to be served. Rather, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He continually laid down his life to serve other people, didn't he? He always went about doing good and blessing and pouring himself out for the sake of our souls. And even when he was faced with the unthinkable physical and spiritual agony of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayer was what? Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but yours be done. Right? That was the heart of Christ. It was the heart of Paul. And beloved, it it must be our heart as well. Paul sets a very good example for us here. Of what it means to prioritize God is expressed will above everything else. And you've heard me say this before. And you will probably hear me say this many more times until either you go to be with Jesus or I do. You've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating in this day of rampant apostasy in the church. Are you hearing me? There's a falling away going on. And so we need to hear this. There are legions of people who start well. Multitudes. Bunches and bunches. That really start well, it seems. That start enthusiastically, right? And yet, they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Or there are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. You remember that, those, these words, right? They're Christ's words in the parable of the soils. Jesus wasn't just telling a good story. He was describing reality. Beloved, we must guard ourselves. We've got to guard ourselves, and we must make use of every means of grace that, 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 so that we may be ones who... Hear the word and receive it and praise God who bear fruit. We've got to ask ourselves honestly and answer the question. Lord, am I seeking to be fully devoted and obedient to the revealed will of God? Am I? We've got to be continually pleading with the Lord. Like the psalmist, Psalm 139, at the very end, search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're in a war, beloved. This world is not our home. And we need to take heed that we imitate Paul in his obedient devotion to God's will. I just, I think about it. Some interactions I have with people, how they'll spend time arguing against the clear, unmistakable expression of God's will in Scripture in order to justify what they do. Let that not be us. Let that not be us. Because I promise you, that is the way to destruction. One slight declension at a time. No Christian ever wakes up in the morning and says, Today I will be an apostate. Nobody does that. It's not like you've got written down in your, you know, your little notebook of things you got to do that week in your little calendar. Nobody pulls out their iPhone and puts in there a note. Today, November 12th, I become an apostate. It never works like that. Beloved, it happens by degrees. It happens by degrees. Are you hearing me? It happens by degrees. One little allowance here. One little allowance there. One disregarding of the Lord here. One disregarding of Him there. And it becomes the pattern of your life. And all your protestations. Oh, I I asked Jesus into my heart when I was 12 and I got baptized. means nothing. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Are you hearing me? This is serious business. So Paul says, look, I, I would have come to you sooner, but I couldn't because I have stuff that I needed to do, right? But he's like, now now I'm done. I've got my three missionary journeys done. And so now I would like to come to Spain. I'm hoping to travel there by way of Rome. And I'm hoping to be with you guys and hang out with you and receive, you know, some help from you in my missionary work. Then I'm just going to get a place to rest for a while, perhaps, and and receive funds and support and, and maybe even some guides or fellow workers to go along with him. But But before that could happen, right, Paul's like, well, I'm not quite free. I've got one last thing that I really need to do. I've got this this one last thing that I need to bring to completion. And he talks about it. And as we read it, what we see demonstrated there, what's behind it all, is Paul's understanding of the times. Paul's understanding of the times in which he lived. Let me let me show you this. Let me show you what I mean. Paul says, starting in verse, verse 25, he says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. I want to come see you guys, but right now i got to go to Jerusalem to bring aid for the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. What therefore I have completed, when I've therefore completed this and I've delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Paul says, I'm going to come there, but first I'm going to go a thousand miles in the opposite direction. Wait, what? Yeah, I've got some things that I need to do in Jerusalem. Here's the deal. Here's what's going on in Jerusalem. Here's what was the deal for the the Christian Jews there, okay? Because they, they had, you know, 
been persecuted, openly persecuted in Jerusalem for the sake of Christ, and because they had been ostracized, most of them from their unbelieving Jewish families, and because they had lost jobs and they had lost homes, and because of a recent famine, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem were in rough shape. They were starving. Many of them were without clothing. They were in a very, very difficult position, okay? So Paul had taken it upon himself. He doesn't mention it here, but he'd taken it upon himself to talk to the church, churches in Macedonia and Achaia, and have them take up a love offering, take up a, 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 an offering to help relieve their material needs, right? They, were, they had some troubles. Look, man, let's just gather some money together and take care of them. We can. Let's do it, right? And so here's Paul saying... I'd like to come, but I still got, I got to do this first, okay? Now, I think it's interesting here, and I want you to notice this, that he says not only were the Gentile churches pleased to give, it wasn't like Paul had to twist their arms, right? It wasn't like that he had to guilt them into doing it. I can't stand preachers like that. I, can you? Like, they bug me. They, man, they bug me. Yep. It wasn't that. They were pleased to give. But notice what else he says. Paul also says, I, I, he sees it as an obligation. Now, I'm not going to go into all this because this is kind of, this is, this is echoes of Romans 11 where he talked about all of this. But I just, I'll say just a couple of things, okay? Here was the deal. He saw that Gentile Christians owed a lot to the Jewish Christians. He owed much, they owed much to them, right? He was obligated, they were obligated to the Jewish Christians, in other words. And, and again, I won't go into it all, but, but it's as the Lord Jesus Christ said to the Samaritan woman at the well, right back in John chapter 4, when he says to her, salvation is from the Jews. Well, what does that mean? The Messiah obviously is from the Jews, but, but what does that mean? Well, from Paul's perspective here, as we're looking at it, what he, what he says is that, look, Gentile Christians owe a lot to your Jewish Christian brothers, and here's why. First of all, think about it. The Bible is from the Jews, isn't it? Isn't it? The Word of God that we hold in our hands, right? Which is the absolute truth of the living God, right? It's not just, it doesn't just contain God's truth. It is the truth. Every single word, right? Well, that came from the Jews. Even the New Testament save for one author, Luke. That's it. They were all Jewish. Not only that, right? Their God, the Jewish God, has become our God. Right? Isn't that true? Yahweh did not reveal himself to all people in the same way, did he? Did he? No, he chose for himself a people in the Old Testament, the Jews, Abraham in particular, with whom he began. We didn't know Yahweh. We did not know the God of the Bible, us Gentiles. But their God has become our God. And their Messiah has become our Savior and Lord. Their Messiah, the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus, born of the Jews. I get tired of seeing those pictures of Jesus with wavy auburn hair and blue eyes and an aquiline nose. Who are you kidding? Jesus didn't look like that at all. First of all, there was nothing beautiful about him that we should, you know, be drawn to him. That version, the Justin Bieber Jesus, he's attractive. 
Isn't it? I mean, if you're into that kind of thing. We've been grafted, man. We were a wild olive shoot. We've been grafted into the blessings of the promises of Abraham and made to partake of every spiritual blessing because of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. The blessings that we enjoy, forgiveness of sins and, and, and justification by faith and reconciliation with God, the hope of, 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 of eternal heaven in the glory of His presence, all of those are owing to our being grafted into the blessings of Abraham through the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who is Jewish. And so, Paul says, look man, it just makes sense that Gentile Christians that have received such incredible blessings, you know, through the Jewish race, through, you know, and, and should have that love for their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ and be willing to sacrifice for their material need. And so he's going to take it. Now, that's all well and good. We appreciate the argument, but it still doesn't answer the question, like, why why's Paul got to deliver it? Why can't somebody else do that? You know what I mean? Delegate, Right. Pick somebody, delegate it to them, and send them to Jerusalem with the money. Well, here's why he doesn't do that. It's because Paul understood the times and what the times demanded. Now, where do I get that from? Here's where I get that. First of all, I want you to think about this. The Macedonian and the Achaean Christians were a testimony to the power of God to change the human heart. Okay, they were. It's an expression of the work of the gospel. Think about it. What would make some Gentiles in Asia care about the plight of some Jews thousands of miles away when Gentiles and Jews by nature hated one another? Right? What would make them think about or care about that plight? I'll tell you what would. Only the power of the gospel. To save them and transform them and give them a heart of love for their brothers and sisters in Christ whom they had never seen. This gift was a tangible testimony that the gospel that Paul preached of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, was indeed the truth and did indeed save souls. And then second, though really undeserved, Paul faced some suspicion from the Jewish Christians. Those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem regarding the gospel that he preached because they mistakenly thought that he had rejected the Jewish scriptures and rejected all Jewish traditions, even the good ones, which wasn't true. But for that reason, there was a question about the Jewish and Gentile unity in the church. And so by personally taking the money from the Gentile Christians to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, Paul would make a very clear statement about the unity and the oneness of the two in the gospel. Here's why this was all important. Here's why this was important. Okay? Paul understood the times. Beloved, he knew that the persecution that every Christian was facing to this point in his life was going to ramp up intensely. It was going to ramp up in intensity and in scope. And the person of, persecution, of, persecution of Christians for their faith in Christ was going to become more and more acute as the days wore on. We see it now in our own country, don't we? Stuff that never would have happened 20 years ago. Opposition to the gospel. Opposition to, to Christians. Very evident. And Paul knew that in order for the church 
to stand. There could be no foolish divisions that would undermine their strength together. You understand? There's no room for factions. Oh, I'm a Jew. Oh, I'm a, I'm a Gentile. Oh, I follow Paul. I follow Kepha. I follow Apollos. I follow Christ. I'm cooler than the rest. Right? There was no room for any of that. No room for these foolish decisions or divisions that would undermine their strength together. They need to be of one heart and one mind. And he hoped, Paul did, that this contribution would cement the relationship between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians so they would be one. And so when we look at that, Paul sets a good example for us. He sets a good example for us in understanding the times in which we're living and then acting accordingly. We live in a society that is rapidly becoming more and more hostile to biblically faithful Christians. We see the way that churches, in order to stay, quote, relevant, are reshaping the gospel into a non-gospel. It's going on all over. We see the way that churches have gone woke. Where if you're LGBTQ, you get a not just, you don't even, you're not just invited to come and sit under the preaching of the word. You're given the best seat in the house, right? Right? We see, we see clearly how professing Christians are renouncing their faith for some new perspective on Christ. I don't know how many worship leaders now it's been who have, who've said, I, I, you know, I can't stand the church. And I'm not a huge fan of the Bible, but I love Jesus. Man, explain that one to me, please. How about you just be honest and say, I've created a Jesus of my own imagination who has nothing to do with the Scriptures, but I'm going to delight in Him and worship Him, and whatever happens, happens. We see the way that worldliness is infiltrating the church and professing Christians are being picked off by the world. That's why there's no room for foolish and stupid divisions in this body. Are you hearing me? There is no room for stupid, foolish, ignorant divisions in this body over unimportant issues. You hearing me? There's no room for that for other Bible-believing, gospel-loving, Christ-worshipping, blood-bought, Bible-honoring, you know, holiness-pursuing Christians either. Paul understood the times. I can't remember who it was that said during the Revolutionary War, I think it might have been Franklin. One of you that's a history buff will know it. He said, well, whoever it said, you know, we must hang together or we will surely hang separately. I think it was Franklin. I'm not sure. He was popular for pithy statements like that. But listen, man. Paul understood the times. And we need to, too. We need to hang together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Faithful, real, honest brothers and sisters in Christ within this congregation and within our community and our world. Now, don't hear what I'm, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying we become ecumenists. That's not what I'm saying. That we become ecumenalists. Ecumenicalists. I don't even know if that's the right word. I'm not saying that we just say, oh, we can, we can jettison truth for the sake of peace. No, nope, no. There is no peace without truth. But what I am saying is that we need to have a heart to receive, again, let me say this, other blood-bought, Christ-worshipping, gospel-honoring, Bible-believing, holiness-pursuing Christians. 
and that we would be tightly woven with one another so that we can endure in the face of the hardship and the trial in this world that is not our home. We need to imitate Paul in his understanding of the times. Are you with me? Are you with me? Paul had a proper understanding because you know what? Paul had a Christocentric view of all things. And that's the third thing I want us to see. Paul had a Christocentric view of all things. It was Christ at the center, period. Look what he says in verse 29. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I want you to see this, because here's what Paul's saying. He's looking forward to his visit in Rome, and, and he describes his certainty regarding the character and the nature of his coming, right? And he says, I'm going to come to you in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. In other words, here's the deal. When Paul came to the Romans, it wasn't going to be about Paul. It, it was going to be about the fullness and the richness of the blessings of Christ. When he came, it wasn't going to be about Paul. It wasn't going to be about him, the great missionary or preacher. It was going to be about Christ whom he preached. That was it. That was the focus. Not long ago, I, I read an article right that described... This is crazy. I was reading this article. It describes some of the self-important demands that certain preachers make when they agree to preach at another church or at a conference. I was blown away. I, there were things like there was a certain honorarium that there had to have, right? There was a certain type of bottled water and a certain number of those bottles that were to be available throughout the day. There was a certain office space and amenities that needed to be available and a certain temperature that that office space should be set at. There were certain snacks that had to be provided, certain sandwiches from Panera Bread that were required in order for him to be able to serve. The expectation of certain dinners. And one guy even had it written in that he would get a new suit and pair of shoes according to his liking. I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> now, listen, there was nothing like that with Paul. There was nothing like that with Paul. His singular focus was to communicate the fullness of the blessing of Christ. See, here's the deal. Paul didn't care about office space, and he didn't care about bottled water, and he didn't care about, I'm sure bottled water would have been helpful, but he didn't care about a certain honorarium or, or snacks or whatever. Like He wasn't like, I need trail mix and matzo balls. That wasn't him. None of that stuff mattered to Paul. You know what Paul, what mattered to Paul? It was this. Paul delighted to speak of the redemption that's in Jesus Christ by his blood, right? He delighted to talk about freedom from the iron yoke of sin and the power of Christ to deliver sinners from real guilt and condemnation and give them eternal life. That's what he liked to talk about. That was his focus. He delighted to speak of, of Christ's might to open blinded eyes and turn us from darkness to light and from the slavery of Satan to the freedom and the joy of life. Praise God under His Lordship. The joy of peace and reconciliation to the Holy God. He loved to talk about adoption into the family of God. He loved to talk about God's electing and persevering love. God, he loved to talk about Christ's power you know, not only to justify his people, but to sanctify them. He loved to talk about the love of Christ. 
He loved to talk about the, the, and proclaim the love of the Lord Jesus Christ so that Christians could say with confidence, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what he loved to do. Bring attention to Christ. He was unapologetically, unashamedly Christ-centered. He viewed his life in very simple terms. I think about that. Here's the, one of the, here is the greatest of the apostles. Okay? He is the greatest. The most accomplished. Here is the greatest of all of the apostles. And he viewed his life in, a very, in very simple terms. It was, make much of Christ. Make much of Christ. And some people... You know, they would, they would see that, they would hear that, and they would think, well, that's a very narrow focus. That's a, man, is that it? I mean, that's all you got? Because they think, you know, that a great man must be great in many things. It's just not true. It was enough for Paul to make nothing of himself and everything of Christ. See, Paul didn't have, he, wasn't, he, was, he did not suffer from the affliction of our age. It was not... Paul of Tarsus Ministries, LLC. It wasn't that. He had no desire for his own fame or his own brand. He wasn't selling t-shirts or sweatshirts or hats. He wouldn't have been an Instagram junkie or a photo op guy. You know what I'm talking about, the photo op guys? The guy that seems to have his little personal photographer with him and whenever he's going to do something spiritual... He's like, hey, snap a picture of this. Hey, I'm going to pray with these people. Make sure you get a good picture. Oh, you didn't get it? Hold on, we'll fake it. No, I'm not kidding you. All those people don't exist. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. They absolutely do. Paul didn't wax poetically about how great and unique he was and what a gift he was to the church, though he was a great gift to the church. He had no desire for his own glory, his own reputation. For him, Christ was everything. I want to ask you something. Is that true of you? Is it true of us? Is it true of me? Is that true of you? Yes, there are other various things that require your attention. You're a human being that lives in this world. But is that which is of most importance? Is that what is of greatest importance? That Christ be made much of? Regardless of what anyone thinks about you. You. None of us, I know, is the Apostle Paul. But are we satisfied to see our lives in such simple terms? Can we say with honesty, my life's not about me. It's about the glory of Christ. He must increase. And I must, what? Decrease. Beloved, my prayer is that we would live lives of obedience and faith and loyalty and whole-souled worship out of a gratitude that the Lord Jesus Christ took our place and died the death that we deserve that we might be pardoned. My prayer for us is that we would live a Christocentric life and not feel the need to broadcast it. I'm going to say that again. My prayer is that we would live Christocentric lives and not feel compelled to tell everybody else about it.
oh, look at me. But I can use that for evangelism. Yeah? When's the last time you did? Well, uh, uh. You get my point? Do you get my point? Do you get my point? Modern Christianity suffers from a great big me problem. So much so that it makes you wonder if it's Christianity at all. Let us live in a way that proves that Christ is our greatest treasure. That He's our Savior and our Lord and our King. By just simply being faithful to Him. Let us live lives that are Christocentric, that are centered upon Him, upon His glory, where our greatest desire is to make much of Him as we make little of ourselves. Paul sets an excellent example for us in that. He really does. He sets such a wonderful example for us in that. Then he sets an example for us as it regards the vital necessity of prayer. Look what he says. Read verses 31, 30 through 32 with me again. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. (laughs) Paul writes these words because, beloved, he believes in the power of prayer. He writes these words because he is convinced of the sovereign power of God to respond to impassioned and earnest prayer with his incontestable power. Paul, think about this. And I, I would just say this. Paul did not trouble himself, as so many people do, with trying to figure out how prayer works. Don't you think we'd have a letter from Paul? Saying, just wanted to let you know, this is how prayer works. This is how it works. With God's sovereignty and us praying and how that affects him. Paul doesn't write that. You know why? Because it's a great mystery nobody can understand. Right? Even if he explained it in Greek or English, none of us could understand it. He doesn't spend time doing that. He just trusts that, you know what? When we pray, when I pray, God does things. God acts in ways that are beyond explanation. I know that God responds to the urgent appeals of his people. And so he says to the Roman Christians, hey guys, I need you to join with me in praying. I need you to strive together with me in prayer. Now I want us to understand both the grounds and the intensity here of Paul's plea. This isn't just a kindly request. He's not just saying, hey, when you got nothing else to do or before you eat some cheese and bread, please pray and talk to God about me for a little bit. It's not it. It's not just a kindly request. It's an urgent appeal. It's an exhortation, right? It's a fervent plea. And I want, you, I want you to notice that he grounds this request, first of all, in, in two things. He grounds it, first of all, in their shared submission to Christ as Lord. And then second, in their mutual love for one another. And here's what Paul's saying, basically. He's like, look, if you have any regard for the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're truly saved, you know him, you got any regard for the Lord and his kingdom and his purposes, if you have any regard for the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you have any love for me, if you've got any love in your heart for me that the Holy Spirit has put there, if you've got either of those things, Please do this. Please join with me in praying. Praying for my ministry. Praying for what I have in front of me. 
It just makes sense. If we share the same Lord and we're endowed with the same Holy Spirit, should there not be a mutual love between all Christians? Shouldn't there be? And real love causes you to pray for somebody, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It ought to. Then I want you to notice the intensity, right? There's the grounds. Here's the intensity. He characterizes prayer, this prayer as striving, okay? It's a word from which we get to agony, okay? It, it, it's a battle. He describes it as a battle or a warfare, something that requires agonizing exertion, something that's intensive and demanding, right? He's talking about prayer in this way because prayer, beloved, demands a determined resistance to the demonic influence and fleshly struggle not to pray, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Don't we all experience that? Don't we? Don't we have to fight through sometimes to pray? Man, I know I do. It demands that we strive against, you know, sin that would prove to be a hindrance to our prayer. That we strive against distractions. How often do we try to pray and it feels like our mind gets hijacked? Or somebody knocks at the door or your phone goes haywire and everybody in the and, and their brother needs to get a tent get get a hold of you in the next 30 seconds right it's like man where was that all day before i was trying to pray i mean striving against unbelief sometimes we just don't pray because we don't believe it's going to make a difference Paul asked him to join with him in concerted prayer because he clearly viewed doing so as a co-laboring with him in the ministry. I need you to do this with me. Spurgeon says of this, just listen to Spurgeon's words. He says, you see, it is earnest prayer which Paul asked for, not the prayer that foams itself away in words, but prayer with force, prayer with energy with humble boldness, with intensity of desire, with awful earnestness, prayer which, like a deep hidden torrent, cuts a channel even through a rock. Do we pray like that? Do you pray like that? Do I? Paul prayed like that. He prayed for churches like that. He, he says to the Colossians how from the day that we heard of their salvation, we haven't ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then he turns right around and expects that they would pray as well. He says to them, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door, open to us a door for the word to declare the majesty of Christ. I'm sorry, mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear that preaching is what he's talking about, which is how I ought to speak. Paul's like, I need you to pray for me, man. I need you to pray for me because when you pray for me, and you earnestly intercede with God on my behalf, you are co-laboring with me in the kingdom. You are co-laboring with me in the mission that God has given to me. And it's vitally important. Paul was convinced that God's power flows through our prayers. But I want to say something to you. Upon a personal note, never underestimate the power of your prayer 
The power of prayer for your pastor and for your elders and for, you know, those who labor in ministry in this church. Your faithful prayers are a co-laboring that is as intensive and as of greater worth as if you were with me in the study praying and pouring over the word of God and then standing in this pulpit as I preach it. I mean that. Or as if you were in Hoima with Gordon and the Alathia elders preaching and teaching the gospel. Or as if you were with June and John in the Philippines or with any of our teachers and ministry leaders. Spurgeon said that the secret of his ministry, the secret of the power of his ministry was the prayers of his people. And it's true. It's true. I'm not ashamed to say like Paul, I need your prayers. And even more than yesterday. I just want you to see how specific Paul is in his request for prayer. He says to him, pray that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Paul knew that to go back to Jerusalem meant to walk right into the lion's den. He knew he was going into danger, man, and that it was a serious thing. He was going, and he was going to be, he was going to be confronted by these unbelieving Jews that honestly had dogged his every step in ministry, that had sought to undermine his preaching, and that were determined to kill him because of his faithfulness to Christ. They were, they were on fire to kill Paul. And so, he asked them to pray that he would be delivered from their hands. Now, I want you to see, this is not like some self-serving request for security that Paul has here. There's a reason he's asking for this. Because, it, it, you know, it's so that he can be refreshed in the company of the saints and, and continue in his ministry in Spain. Right? That's why he wants to be rescued. Uh, understand that Paul was not focused on himself. Remember, he was willing to be beaten if he could preach the gospel, right? He was, he was willing to be threatened if he could do ministry. He was wi- even willing to face death if he, could, if he could do ministry. And so he's praying. He's asking him, look, pray for me that I'll be kept safe so I can do ministry. And he also asked him, hey, pray that when I bring this money to the, the, the Christian Jews, the saints in Jerusalem, that they'll receive it. He knows there are some there that are prejudiced against, that were prejudiced against his ministry to the Gentiles, and they might not accept that financial gift that he was bringing to them, but he wanted the saints in Rome to pray along with him that the gift would not offend the Jewish believers, but instead would have its desired effect of creating unity, right, between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And then last he asked them, hey, pray that I'll be able to come to you with joy and, and be refreshed in your company. Pray that I'll be able to come and rejoice with you that your prayers have been answered and, and that I'll find with you a time of refreshment and encouragement. It's an expression from Paul to say, you know what? Pray that you all might be the means by which I am preserved from ministerial discouragement. Let me be encouraged by you guys. Interestingly enough, all of these prayers were answered though perhaps not in the way that Paul expected. When Paul arrived in Jerusalem, the Jews from Asia, Acts 21 verse 27 said, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. That means the unbelieving Jews that tailed him from Macedonia and Achaia, 
those guys. When he got there, they showed up and were like, hey, we, we need to take care of this guy. He's a problem. A few verses later, Paul tells us, I'm sorry, Luke tells us, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, the, you know, I guess like leader, the, the sort of the governor of the area of the cohort, the Roman soldiers, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Word comes to him. Hey, there's a problem. The Jews are going nuts and they're attacking Paul. And so wouldn't you know it, the Roman soldiers rushed to the scene and they saved Paul's life by arresting him. But they arrest him, they take him into custody, and he's protected from the mob. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, through the prayers of the Roman Christians. That's how that happened. Because they prayed, word came to the tribune of the cohort, and Paul's life was preserved. You know who did that? God did that. God did that. And he used the means of... Roman soldiers. But that wasn't the end of it. When he was in jail, the Jews made a plot. And they it says in, in Acts 23, verse 12, they made a plot and bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink till they'd killed Paul. They must have gotten real hungry and thirsty. Because Paul's nephew just, just happened <laughs> to hear about the plot. And he told Paul, and then he told the Roman tribune, and their plot got foiled. Again, how did that happen? The prayers of the saints in Rome. Moreover, the gift that Paul brought to the Christian Jews in Jerusalem was accepted with gladness and thankfulness, just as Paul had hoped. Just as he'd hoped. It did exactly what he hoped it would do. It cemented the bond between the Jewish and the Christian church. How'd that happen? By prayer. And then last... Then last, Paul did come to Rome under arrest, but he lived there for two years in relative freedom. And enjoying the protection of the Roman guard, he received his friends and he preached and he taught for two years. Two years. And God, in fact, used this time for the benefit of the entire church because it was during this first imprisonment in Rome that Paul wrote the letters to the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Where in the world would Paul have found such peace to do that? Under Roman arrest. How'd that happen? earnest prayer beloved do we pray like we ought do we pray like we ought do we pray for people to be saved both through the personal witness of our church and through the word of preached do we pray for one another that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the lord jesus christ do we pray for healthy spiritual nourishing relationships to flourish in the church do we pray that all of us would be marked by a sincere and wholehearted worship in spirit and in truth, in lift and in life. Do we pray for the finances of the church? We should. We're behind. I'm not begging. Do we pray for strength and encouragement and wisdom for our pastor and for our elders and for our ministry staff and for our support staff? Do we pray that God would bless the ministry of the word and that Christ's voice would be distinctly heard in every sermon?
I never thought to pray that. Now you do. Now you have. Again, words from, Sir, from Charles Spurgeon. You know my affinity for old Chuck. I love the guy, right? He says this. Hear these words. They're great. He says, no man hears his pastor preach without deriving some benefit from him if he has earnestly prayed for him. I'm going to say that again. No man hears his pastor preach without deriving some benefit from him if he has earnestly prayed for him. The best hearers who get the most out of a man are those who love him best and pray most for him. God can make us dry wells to you if you offer no prayers for us. He can make us clouds that are full of rain if you have pleaded with God on our behalf. If that be so, that without God's blessing we can do nothing and that God's blessing is is given if we inquire of God for it, then I need not press you further. You will pray for me and you will pray for other preachers of the word. If your hearts are right, you will each one resolve to offer special, continuous and fervent prayer in private and in your families and in our holy convocations. And these shall deepen into an agony before God. And then a blessing shall be given us, which we shall scarcely have room enough to receive. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And then last, very quickly, Paul expresses his desire for the strength and the endurance of the church. Then he says, he closes this section by offering a prayer for the church in Rome, saying, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. What a simple benediction, right? What an easy, simple benediction that is. Heartfelt. See, Paul had a heart for for the church and for its strength and endurance in this world. And so his prayerful desire for the Roman Christians is an overarching and a permeating peace. In fact, this is the third benediction of this chapter, right? Just look at at Romans 15. Look at Bibles with me. Just go back to verse 5. Here's the first one. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, right? Then in verse 3, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And then this one, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, What do I want us to see here? Here's what I want us to see. Each one of these benedictions point to essential needs for strength and endurance in the church, right? We need to be of one heart. We need to be of one mind. We need to live in harmony with one another so that together with one voice, we may glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We need to do that. And then second... You know, we, we need to be filled with all joy and peace in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and believing His Word and believing His promises so that we can set our gaze and not remove it from the hope that is to come when Christ is revealed in all of His majesty, right? And then last, we need God's presence with us, assuring us of peace and reconciliation with them and establishing us in peace with one another so that there will be no opportunities for the devil to gain a foothold. There'll be no opportunities for the devil to gain a foothold. Paul cared deeply about the church's well-being and for strength and endurance in this present evil age. 
And do we have that? Do we have that same desire? And are we doing everything in the power of the Holy Spirit, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Are we? Do we? Paul has left us an excellent example to follow. Hasn't he? And this is great. An example to us of the importance of obedient devotion to God's will, of a proper understanding of the times and what they require of us, of a Christocentric view of all things, much of Christ, nothing of myself, of the vital necessity of prayer, and of the importance of preserving the strength and the unity of the church so that it endures. We would do well to imitate Paul. We would do well to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Now I know sometimes people think, I, I just, I mean, I hear what you're saying and, and I hear, you know, what you're saying about the gospel and the power of the Spirit to do this in us and everything. I don't know. I don't know if that's really realistic for me. If it's really realistic in my life. I remember when I was a little kid, little kid, now, not so little, nine or 10. And I, when I was nine or 10, my favorite baseball player in the entire world was, Gabe, Johnny Bench. Johnny Bench was my favorite baseball player in the entire world. He was the greatest catcher that ever lived. He was. He's better than Carlton Fisk. Don't fool yourself. Less. He was awesome. He was incredible. He had a cannon for an arm. The dude, you know, pioneered one-handed catching. He, he, he could block anything. And not only that, he knocked home runs like, like it was nobody's business. He was the clutch of the clutch. Like, he was awesome. And I remember, at 10 years old, I'm like, I'm going to be the next Johnny Bench. So, man, I went outside... I had people, everybody in the neighborhood throw to me. I went out there and I was throwing down to second base or trying to, you know, I was, I did everything, man. I was spend time hitting balls and everything, do all that stuff. I became a fair baseball player. I was no Johnny Bench. You know why? Well, because I'm five, nine and Johnny Bench is like six, two because I have an arm that is okay, he has a howitzer for a right arm, right? Because I can hit the ball a little ways, he can hit the ball a mile. Because I did not have in me what Johnny Bench had. I didn't have it. So I could, you know, try all I wanted to. I wasn't going to be Johnny Bench. I want you to hear me when I say this to you. The relationship between me and Johnny Bench is not the same as the relationship between me and the Apostle Paul. And nor is it the same as the relationship between you if you're a believer and the Apostle Paul. I can say, I can't be Johnny Bench because I don't have the tools Johnny Bench had. But none of us can say, I can't imitate Paul. Because I don't have the tools that Paul had. No, you're right. 
you actually have more. The same Holy Spirit that dwelt in Paul dwells in you. The very same one. And his, not, his power is not abated in you because your name is not Saul of Tarsus, now Paul. The power of the Holy Spirit, his presence, you didn't get seven-eighths of the Holy Spirit, but Paul got all of them. No. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you have everything you need to imitate Paul. But wait, brother, you said you have more. Yeah. You know what you have that Paul didn't have? Do you know what you have that Paul didn't have? A completed Bible. I remember, and I'll close with this. I know y'all are, it's a little late, isn't it? Not really. It's 1225. You're used to it. I remember not long ago. I guess it was a little while ago. I remember somebody saying to Gretch, how many of the commandments of God are we supposed to keep? She asked it in sincerity. Like, I just want to do like maybe these, this 60% over here and hope for a, a curve. You know? Yeah? And Gretchen looked at her and said, All of them? All of them. But that's a really high bar. It is. That's a really high bar. It is. Very much so. No question. But I won't ever make it. Okay. Well, that's not an excuse not to be obedient, is it? Is it? power for Christ's likeness if you're a Christian dwells in each of us each one of us and in humility we need to be earnest about seeing the fullness of the blessing of Christ in our lives and in this church think on that and let's pray together Father I am grateful to you for this time that we've been in your word I'm grateful for your truth. I'm grateful, Lord God, that you've given to us not only your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Savior and our Lord, and then our example, but you've also given to us the Apostle Paul as an example for each one of us of a man like us, of a man indwelt with the Holy Spirit of the living God. An apostle, none of us are that, but Lord, with the same Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would teach us to imitate Him. And I pray that we would do so with gladness and with joy. I pray now that you would move amongst us during this time as we respond in our hearts to the word that we've heard, that we'd respond in a way that's pleasing in your sight. And then as we stand to sing, that we would sing from hearts that are full. We love you. We give you all glory in Christ's name. Amen.